Hi, I'm Robin Black, and this is Robin Thinks Deconstructing Books That Wrecked Us. As children, we are taught to listen to adults and other authorities. But adults teach us very different things, and we end up trying to operate on very different messages. The older we get, the more those conflicting messages begin piling up until we no longer know what is right or true. Deconstruction is the picking apart of these various messages to understand which ones work for us and which ones don't. In this podcast, I will deconstruct some of the most popular books in Christianity to determine which ones have harmful messages and what those messages are, so you can decide for yourself which ones are worth keeping and which can be thrown away. Okay, so today I'm going to be starting on The Circle Maker, which is a book by Mark Batterson. Uh, he's a big wig, you know, mega church pastor in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, multi-campus pastor, etc., etc. Um, so this is one of, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of what I like to call Christian rah-rah books. Um, they're like the prayer of Jabez. They're these, you know, if you build it, they will come or, you know, the power of positive thinking books. There's just a lot of problems with this book and books like this in general in terms of, you know, how do they actually align with the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus? Uh, these are very Americanized books that really propose an American ideal of success, particularly when you hold it up against the life of Jesus. Okay. And I think this is why American evangelicals really, they kind of worship Paul a lot more than they worship Jesus. Jesus did, just doesn't fit in with their ideal of like success. Um, and so the circle maker starts off with, by telling the story of uh, Honey, 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 H-O-N-I. Uh, Hani the, Hani the Circle Maker, okay? It, it takes place in the first century BC, so, so just before the generation directly prior to Jesus. As the story goes, uh, it hadn't rained in more than a year. And so there was this, uh, Batterson calls him an eccentric sage uh, named Honey that lived outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And so... Honey comes in and he takes, he has a six foot staff. Um, I'm actually just going to go ahead and read this. It says, with a six foot staff in his hand, Honey began to turn like a math compass. His circular movement was rhythmical and methodical. 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees, 360 degrees. He never looked up as the crowd looked on after what seemed like hours but it had only been seconds honey stood inside the circle he had drawn then he dropped to his knees and raised his hands to heaven with the authority of the prophet elijah who called down fire from heaven honey called down rain lord of the universe i swear before your great name that i will not move from this circle until you have shown mercy upon your children the words sent a shudder down the spines of all those who were within earshot that day. It wasn't just the volume of his voice. It was the authority of his tone. Not a hint of doubt. Okay, I want to stop here and I'm going to finish the story. But one of the things that I want to talk about is how, 
you'll notice there's a lot of details that he's giving about, you know, the tone of his voice, the sound of his voice. Okay. This is a, this is an extremely obscure, uh, figure. He, he talks about how he came to know about Honey in the first place in chapter three. And it says, um, it comes from the book of legends, which is, uh, the teachings of Jewish rabbis passed down from generation to generation. And one of the things that you have to understand is, you know, at this point in time, they didn't have word processors. Okay. So the likelihood is that, you know, as we can see this with the Bible, right? You can have a, a story of someone that, that spans 60 years and it might only cover a chapter or an entire life of someone is only, you know, a footnote that's only mentioned in like one or two verses. So it's the same thing with this Honey. So, I, you know, what I want to show you here is that, you know, Mark Batterson is filling in a lot of blanks. In fact, he even says, you know, in this, uh, the book of legends, he says, I had dug down 202 pages when I stumbled across a story that may as well have been a buried treasure. It was the legend of Honey the Circle Maker and it forever changed the way I pray. Okay, now I'm not someone who believes that if it's not found in the Bible, it doesn't have merit, it doesn't have value, whatever. It's not illegitimate that he takes this story from from some source other than the Bible on which he writes his entire book. That's not really a problem. But the problem is he weaves it into this very, very, very dramatic story that may or may not be accurate to what really happened. And part of why I say that, uh, when we get to sort of like the aftermath, I'm going to talk about why I'm not, I question his interpretation a little bit or whether his interpretation is really true to the message of the rest of the Bible. And this is, there's nothing wrong with taking these like little snippets either from the Bible itself or from history, but you always have to be holding them up to the entirety of the Bible from, you know, who God is from the very beginning. You know, I, the Bible says that he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Okay. So what ends up happening is so many times you get this really like schizophrenic God. Because what happens is God will do something over here and then turn around and do something, uh, you know, two or three chapters later that seems totally contradictory. The other thing that ends up happening is you have this very like angry Old Testament God, but then you have this very, you know, sweet, loving Jesus. And so too often what I find is that the, the, the gospel message that is taught in evangelical churches, and I think this is why there's so much church damage, is essentially that Jesus came to save us from his very angry father. Okay, but Jesus is God. God is Jesus. They are one and the same. You can't have this this angry, angry, angry God and this like sweet Jesus that came to save us from his very angry father. And I think what ha- this is exactly what 
you know, evangelical Christianity has done is it creates this angry God that we need Jesus to save us from. And then they're the gatekeepers of Jesus, right? They're the ones that get to decide who's worthy of redemption. And this is part of why I wanted to talk about Genesis last week, because it's kind of the tie in between love and respect and the circle makers. It's this idea of remember what the, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with in the first place is you will be like God. You get to decide what is good and what is bad. And so this is what evangelical Christianity has done with Jesus is they have made themselves the gatekeepers. They get to be the ones that decide what does God want? What does God approve of? What does God not approve of? And uh, Jesus is kind of like the key that they hold that saves us from this angry God. It's not true. God is God is God is God. And God has had one singular uh, mission since the beginning of time, which is to bring us back to Eden. And that's what we all have. That's what we always have to be looking at is what was Eden like? And then what happened in the fall? And then how do we get back to Eden? This is... To me, this is the purpose and this is the point. And remember, in Eden, it was just God and Adam and Eve, right? This was sort of like perfect communion. They had everything they needed. They had food. They had companionship. They had the animals. Uh, Adam was given the task of naming the animals, which gave him purpose, gave him something to do in the morning. But it wasn't, you know, God didn't just, just say, he didn't just give him a task. He didn't just say, Adam, name the animals. He brought the animals to Adam for Adam to name them with him. It was a project that he created that he could do with his son. Okay. And that particular um, aspect or element of Genesis is going to become really prevalent in this book, The Circle Makers, you know, which is indicative of a lot of these, you know, what I call Christian rah-rah books. It's all this like, you have big purpose, you have big, you know, you do great things, you know, for the glory of God. Um, And I just, first of all, I don't think it's true. Second of all, I think it's exhausting. And third of all, I don't think that is in keeping with the the overarching message, message of the Bible, which is that the whole goal, the whole purpose is to get back to Eden, where we were validated by God, where the only thing that we needed was to be loved by God. And then what happened in the fall is we became divided and Eve then got her sense of validation from her relationships or from Adam. And Adam gets his sense of validation from like work, what he accomplishes, what he achieves, what he builds with his hands. And part of that is, you know, if you just, if you look at the world around us, that is how things work. Basically, that is how we are. Um, and But again, I talked about how, you know, now we're reaching a point where I think, um, you know, we have a lot of women sort of like taking on the curse of Adam, and then we have a lot of men taking on the curse of Eve. Um, But either way, all you're doing is you're exchanging one curse for another. The goal, as far, you know, in, in my view, is to return to Eden. God gives us everything that we need. We don't need to get 
our sense and our wor of worth and value from what we do, what we achieve, or who we can get to love us. So Mark Batterson discovers this very obscure first century sage, and then he creates this very dramatic story, which is the story of Honey. So here we have Honey. He's standing in the circle that he uh, drew with his staff. And he says, Lord of the universe, I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you have shown mercy upon your children. Okay. And so he keeps praying and says, and then it happened. As his prayer ascended to the heavens, raindrops descended to the earth. An audible gasp swept across the thousands of congregants who had encircled Honey. And I can tell you right now that, you know, given the recording methodologies of first century um, authors, <laughs> no one's talking about an audible gasp, okay? This is totally and completely fictionalized and dramatized, okay? And there, it's not that that's necessarily or inherently bad, but... You know, one of the things that we know about uh, worship services, like if you go to the, you know, kind of the Hillsong type evangelical services, it's been very well documented that they create this very emotional experience. This is what Batterson is doing right here. Like right off the bat, he's creating this very emotional experience so that you'll get all charged up and motivated to go out and do all these great things. And you know, it's kind of it's kind of like the equivalent of like going on a fad diet, right? We've I think by now I'm going to say probably everybody has had some kind of an experience with a diet where you read this diet and all these people are losing all this weight and they have all these experience, great experiences and you go out and you buy the book and you buy all the food and you know, sure enough within a couple of weeks you've lost 10-15 pounds and you look great. And then what happens? And then it starts to get like really hard and then your body fights back and then a lot of times you end up gaining back more weight and you end up in an even worse situation than you were when you started. Okay. So one of the problems is we look at books like this as being sort of, they're inspirational, they help us out. But I think that they, these are very equivalent to sort of like spiritual diet books where they give us a very false sense of what we should be doing and I think they can be very damaging and very destructive because we try them for a while we might see sort of some initial results or initial improvement or what have you um, but then they don't work and we end up just you know burning ourselves out working working harder and harder to try and make them happen and then they don't and then we're just really burned out and exhausted and then what religion tells us is somehow it's our fault. We didn't pray hard enough. We didn't work hard enough. Um, we didn't do enough. And so I don't think these are just, you know, net neutral. I think they're harmful. I think they're destructive. And I think they are damaging, which is why I am doing this podcast. Okay. So he's telling this very dramatic story about Honey. And he says, um, you know, he says his prayer and... Eventually, some raindrops start coming out of the sky. And then he says, but Honey wasn't satisfied with a sprinkle. Still, still kneeling within the circle, Honey lifted his voice over the sounds of celebration. 
Not for such a rain have I prayed, but for rain that will fill cisterns, pits, and caverns. The sprinkle turned into such a torrential downpour that eyewitnesses said no raindrop was smaller than an egg in size. It rained so heavily and so steadily that the people fled to the Temple Mount to escape the flash floods. Honey stayed and prayed inside his protracted circle. Once more, he refined his bold request. Not for such a rain have I prayed, but for rain of your favor, blessing, and graciousness. Then, like a well-proportioned sun shower on a hot and humid August afternoon, it began to rain calmly, peacefully. Each raindrop was a tangible token of God's grace. Okay, and here, once again, this is what is known as hyperbole. Okay, he's creating this beautiful story where everything all works out and everything works together. And one man um, with just enough faith uh, brings all this rain for everyone. You know, one of the problems with these very pat stories like this is we don't always look at the out the outcomes or the cost he's not looking at all the outcomes of this okay so one of the things that he says there he says uh the sprinkle turned into such a torrential downpour that eyewitnesses said no raindrop was smaller than an egg in size it rained so heavily and so steadily that the people fled to the temple mount to escape the flash floods okay Flash floods are incredibly dangerous. People die in flash floods every single year. On top of which, when you have a rain that is that heavy and it rips that steadily, um, it destroys crops, it destroys livestock. That kind of a rain can actually destroy a city. You know, here's Batterson just telling this really kind of spectacular story and we don't ever really stop and think about is that actually a good thing so number one I'm not entirely convinced that all of you know I I have no idea how much of his hyperbole that he's weaving here actually comes from this first century book I don't know how much of it was actually written or how much of it was passed on verbally we don't know any of this So it's not per se that there's anything wrong with expanding a little bit and some detail. We have plenty of dramatizations. We have tons of movies about Noah. We have, you know, veggie tales. There's nothing wrong with turning these, you know, very bare bones stories into something more dramatic. But we also have to be very careful about how we receive these overly dramatic stories. And we, and even more importantly, we have to be careful about the message that they're sending. And we have to always uh, line it back up with scripture, with who God is from start to finish and who Jesus is and how Jesus lived his life. And I don't think this really lines up. And, you know, obviously I'm going to talk more about that, but here's a very important point. Um, He says, eventually the dirt turned into mud and back into dirt again. After quenching their thirst, the crowd dispersed. And, and, you know, and here we go, uh, the crowd dispersed. Well, (laughs) you you notice we've had some, we kind of jumped the shark here, right? So we have no idea, like, how long this happened or how long this went on. But we've gone from uh, people fled to the Temple Mount to escape the flash floods. And then suddenly uh, 
you know, we have a crowd again, they quench their thirst and then they disperse. Okay, we're, we're kind of jumping all over the place. This doesn't actually make a lot of sense when you really start to break it down. This is part of why deconstruction is important. Deconstruction isn't just um, important for your faith. It's important for the things that you read and the, and what the kind of information and the knowledge that you take in. And this is a this is a really important thing to understand is that he's building a very powerful story here that doesn't necessarily hold together when you start to pick it apart and break it down, which is exactly why it's important to pick it apart and break it down. But then he says, Honey was celebrated as a hometown hero by the people whose lives he'd say he saved. But some within the Sanhedrin called the circle maker into question. A faction believed that drawing a circle and demanding rain dishonored God. A very important concept in the Bible is one of call. It's called counting the cost. You know, one of the things that the Bible talks about is God will give us the desires of our heart, but the Bible also says count the cost. You need to be very careful what it is that you're asking God for. Um, some people might be familiar with the Garth Brooks song, Unanswered Prayers, right? Um, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And those prayers aren't necessarily unanswered. It's just that sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes God does not give us what we want. But here's something that I'm convinced of is that sometimes God does give us what we want, even though it's incredibly unhealthy for us, even though it's going to have catastrophic consequences, he will give it to us because we, because that's how we learn. We need to, to, to learn and understand and know that we can get what we want, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to bring us love, joy, peace, happiness, um, it doesn't mean that it's going to bring us contentment. Sometimes getting what we want can be one of the absolutely worst things that can happen to us. And so we need to be very careful about this. And so I'm not, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, Mark Batterson's ministry, um, how he went about getting it, building it, having it. Um, I had been aware of him. He wrote a book called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And I had attended a church where a pastor was very um, kind of obsessed with this book. He talked about it a lot. And I hadn't read that book, but then somehow I came across Mark Batterson was looking for um, a launch team for The Circle Maker. And so I'm, I was on the launch team for this book, and that's how I came to uh, be aware of it. You know, and I was one of those people at that point in time, I was all in, you know, I was writing down my prayers and I was circling. I was, you know, I was all in on like what he was talking about. And it, and it was very soon after that, that the bottom kind of dropped out in the church that I was in and, um, you know, everything went to hell basically. And so then he wrote another book and I was going to be on the launch team for that one, but it was one more of these, you know, Christian rah-rah, you can do it all, just pray hard, God will give you your wildest dreams, blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, this is just exhausting. I was like, you know, where's the book for when you can barely even put one foot in front of the other? Where's the book for 
you know, my car has just been repossessed and I don't have a job and I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent and I could be homeless at any day and I have no church, I have no support, I have no friends because, um, you know, I got very heavily invested in this church and got the rug yanked out from underneath me. Um, And so, you know, that was how I came to, you know, start start to become aware of the toxicity of these these rah-rah books. And we love this idea of the hero, right? The hero runs in and the hero saves the day. And then everyone loves the hero and everyone lives happily ever after. We're all about these happily ever after stories. That is not what happens here. It says a faction believed that drawing a circle and demanding rain dishonored God. And that is what is always going to happen. You are never going to be able to please everyone. And sometimes the quote unquote miracles that you perform will actually land you in more hot water than if you had just let things be. There's a story in the New Testament uh, of how Jesus restored sight to a blind man and then he went back to his home and they believed that it was the result of demons and so they cast him out so there's a parallel uh you know even to to modern life where uh you know people who are deaf they um you know we have a lot of surgeries now and and technology now that can that in some cases can restore hearing to people who are deaf and and one of the problems that you know uh we talk a lot about like ableism right and it's this idea that it's better to hear and if you have the ability to give someone uh their hearing back then of course you should do that because their life will be better if they can hear and what we're finding out is that's not actually true there are people they have grown up and they have built community and their identity is established on uh, they're part of the non-hearing community. And so they have friends. In some cases, they might have um, partners or spouses or children. And so their whole world is kind of built around not hearing. And so when someone comes in and offers them what they consider to be a gift sometimes it can actually destroy lives and destroy communities and destroy relationships instead of making them better and so I think this is one of the big lessons is be careful what you pray for because it's the law of unintended consequences things don't always work out the way you expect them to Sometimes your vision or your idea of what will make your life better won't. And sometimes God will give you exactly what you're asking for because you need to figure out that that thing is not going to make your life better. I think we've all kind of been in situations where, um, you know, maybe there was a person that we uh, wanted to date or, or even marriage. There are people who have literally gotten married because their friends were getting married and having babies and they didn't want to be left out or because they were getting a lot of pressure from their parents or, you know, all these different reasons. They knew 
that this was not the right person. They knew they should not marry this person, but they married them anyway. Okay, so there's all kinds of things that that we can have if we really want it bad enough. If you want to be married, it's actually not that hard to find someone to marry you. It does not mean that it is actually going to make your life better. But we all kind of have these ideas about, oh, if I could just do this or, oh, if I could just do that, my life would be so much better. And it's not necessarily true. And so I think there's a there's a really important lesson here that you miss uh, if you're just kind of taking things at face value the way Mark Batterson wants you to take them. You know, he's very, he uses a lot of hyperbole to draw your attention to the parts of the story that he wants to make sure that you don't miss. And that, but yet the aftermath, like what actually happened to Honey afterwards, uh, the details are suddenly very sketchy. But But he does provide the detail that not everyone was happy with Honey. And so what we don't know is just how bad did they make Honey's life after, you know, he performed this miracle ostensibly. We don't know, but that's a really important detail to the story that you need to understand and that we need to pay attention to. Um, And then he says, the prayer that saved a generation was deemed one of the most significant prayers in the history of Israel. What I find interesting about that claim is that if, if Honey's prayer was one of the most significant prayers in the history of Israel, why exactly is it buried on page 200 in some incredibly obscure book? So, I don't think that that claim actually bears weight. If he was really such an important character in Jewish history, if this if this was deemed one of the most important prayers, uh, it seems like he would actually be a little more well-known. So that's the story of Honey. He draws a circle. You know, there's been a drought. He draws a circle. God sends a miraculous rain. Honey does this miracle. But then he goes back home, and it's questionable exactly what kind of reception he really received when he got home. Um, so then Mark Batterson moves into, you know, how he's going to use this story to sort of challenge us and encourage us. And he says, there's nothing God loves more than keeping promises, answering prayers, performing miracles, and fulfilling dreams. That is who he is. That is what he does. And the bigger the circle we draw, the better Because God gets more glory. Okay, here's the thing. This is a book that is written by a pastor named Mark Batterson. Okay, Um, I would question just how many people can actually name Mark Driscoll's church and how many people can name um, Josh Howerton's church or how many people can name Matt Chandler's church. There's probably a lot of people that know the name of that one. Uh, How many people can name Max Licato's church? What is the name of Andy Stanley's church? What was the name of Tim Keller's church? Everybody knows these names. These names are very uh, famous. But there's probably a very, very, very small handful of people that actually know the names of their churches. So do you see the difference between... Who's really getting the glory here? Is it really God that is being glorified or are 
the pastors glorified. Um, I'm doing a, a, a series on Yellowstone right now. One of the things that I talked about in that podcast is how in Deuteronomy, right after God gives uh, the Ten Commandments, he says, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship on offerings. And then there's there's a verse here. It's um, Deuteronomy 4.24. And I think this has been really mistranslated. Part of the reason I think this is so mistranslated is because it, it's kind of word salad. It, it, the way that it's translated, it doesn't even make any sense. It says, wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. And I don't think that's what that actually means. I think what it actually means is wherever my name is honored. And what I think that means personally is I think that God is very, very, very well aware of the differences between what man is actually doing for God and what man is doing for himself. I don't think that God is in any way fooled or deceived by who the Vatican uh, actually exists to honor. The Vatican is not a monument to God. The Vatican is a monument to man's own greatness. And the reason that I say that is because we know the names of every single man that has created something that is kind of located within Vatican City, right? Uh, Michelangelo, Raphael, right? All of these great masters, whether they're architects, whether they're painters, whether they're sculptors, their names are known throughout the world. And when people go, they marvel at the works of these very specific men whose names we know, which means those are not monuments that were built for the glory of God, those are monuments that were built for the glory of man, okay? If we really genuinely wanted to, you know, worship the the handiwork of God or worship the splendor of God, we have oceans and mountains and forests. See, those are created by God and those are testaments to the greatness of God. That's where we go. When we actually want to genuinely worship God and, and, and view uh, God's handiwork, we go, we go to nature. But when we want to worship the greatness of man, we go to museums or we go to the Vatican, which is basically like a giant museum which houses the works of man. You know, one of the things that I, that I talk about a lot is God knows man. God knows the nature of man. And God, you know, God writes this because God already knew the Vatican was on its way. God knows the nature of man. God knows that it is in the nature of man to build monuments to man's own greatness. And so that is why God said, if you want to worship me. If you want to make an offering to me, you put it on a plain altar of dirt. 
You don't make it fancy and spectacular and you don't make it a monument to yourself and to your greatness. And this is what we have in our great big giant mega churches, right? These are not monuments to God. These are monuments to man's own greatness. They are, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at my great big huge building. Look at my great big huge viewing audience. Look at how many downloads I get every week. It's all about you know, me, the mega pastor, the celebrity pastor. Um, uh, in, in Deuteronomy, God says, if you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. So there again, he's saying plain, just a plain altar. If you actually want to do something that honors me, and he's also saying, and believe me, I will know who it is for and who it is really all about. But if you want to make an offering for me, then wherever my name is honored, I will come to you and bless you. And what I, what that says to me is that there is a very big difference between things that people actually do for God and people and things that people do for their own glory and their own greatness. So when, um, Mark Batterson says here, the bigger the circle we draw, the better, because God gets more glory. I don't think that's true. I think that is a lie that men tell themselves to try and justify their hunger for glory and greatness. He does say something here that I think that is absolutely true. And one of the things that I said when I was going through Ica's Dating Goodbye, you know, I've talked about how I think Joshua Harris kind of got a pretty bad rap. I think Joshua Harris was actually this pretty sincere, I think he had sincere and good intentions. I think, first of all, he was he was raised in evangelicalism, not even like going to a public school and then just going to church. He was homeschooled, so he was literally... Um, indoctrinated into evangelicalism and unfortunately you know he passed on a lot of like patriarchal beliefs and patriarchal principles without actually even understanding it that being said I think it it showed through that he actually has a really sincere heart and so I think you know as I talked about many times I think there were some really good nuggets of gold in I Kiss Dating Goodbye that was kind of buried in a lot of um evangelical rhetoric in love and respect however that that's just pretty much an abomination from start to finish there there is no gold in love and respect uh but i think there was some gold in i kiss dating goodbye and uh, there's there's a little piece of gold right here that i want to point out in the circle makers it says it is absolutely imperative at the outset that you come to terms with this simple yet life-changing truth god is for you And I think that that right there is, in fact, like a nugget of gold. And I think that right there is so true. I think there are so many people. And, and, you know, unfortunately, I think evangelicalism has done this to us. Um, Evangelicalism has created a very works-based gospel. And, in fact, The Circle Maker is a very works-based book. It's all about... You know, God has all these great plans for you. You need to get off your ass and go make them happen. I don't think that's true. But that statement right there is incredibly true. And I absolutely believe that we need to like really 
grasp that. God is for you. I deeply believe God wants desperately to be a part of your life and to be sort of invited into like your daily life. God wants to hang out with you. There's a a comedian on uh, Instagram that I started following. His name is Kevin James Thornton. And he does these like auto tunes and he talks about, you know, in my super fundamentalist evangelical youth group, uh, this used to happen and that used to happen. And he talks about how uh, they used to have quiet time, you know, like, and there was this one girl and she'd get up at, I think like 4.30 AM, or at least she was saying that. And the thing is, it's 4.30 AM. Nobody knows if you're actually getting up at 4.30 AM or if you're just, you know, telling people that. And part of the reason he came to this conclusion is because he would tell everyone, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I had good quiet time. Yep. Great quiet time. He didn't have quiet time. And this is part of what evangelicalism and religion does is it it makes things so much more complicated than it needs to be. We have this very holy, high and mighty idea of how we have to approach God and who we have to convince God that we are. You probably notice like when people start praying, they start sort of talking like this, our father, thank you, good and mighty holy father in the heaven above, right? It, 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 that's not the relationship that God wants to have. God sees everything that we do. He knows us. He knows how we talk to our friends. And I'm going to be honest, one of the one of the big kind of transitions for me was um, when I first walked away from church and I was first starting to kind of deconstruct, deconstruct um, I started getting really honest with God. And what that involved was, swearing at God a lot. I was so angry. I was so angry. And, you know, I had been holding so much of myself down. I had been, I had been oppressing myself for years because this is what I was taught, you know, in religion that God wanted from me. And so as I started, I just, there, you know, you reach this point where you just, you can't hold it down anymore. You can't hold it in anymore. You, it's like you literally, you just, you burst at the seams. And believe it or not, as hard as that is, and as much as it makes you feel like you're crazy, I think that is one of the absolutely most healthy places you can get to. And when I got to that place, man, it was like, it was like Tourette's. Like my, you know, I hesitate to call it prayer life. I just spewed at God. I mean, for probably close to a year my quote unquote prayer life was pretty much just pouring out rage on God. <laughs> and that's when I found out God is a really big God and God can take it. And one of the things that I learned and what I believe now is I absolutely believe that God wants us to pour our rage out on God because God does not have like tender, like God is not a, a, a tender, fragile human being. And what ends up happening is, you know, when you have a lot of rage in you, it's going to come out eventually. And if you don't pour it out on God, or if you don't find like a healthy way of getting it out, like, you know, going into a canyon somewhere and screaming your rage to the universe, however you do it, if you don't get it out in a healthy way, it's going to come out on a person. And sometimes that might be your spouse and sometimes that might be your kids. And, and I don't have kids, but I can only imagine the horror 
that must happen when you kind of reach a breaking point and you spill your rage on your kids. And I think that happens with a lot of people. And I think that um, in too many cases, it happens like for years on. It doesn't just happen once and it's like completely out of character. I think there's people that end up pouring their rage out on their kids for years on end. And I can tell you right now, I absolutely 100% without question believe God absolutely would rather us pour our rage on him than on other people and particularly not like our loved ones and even worse our like children like little small people that haven't even like developed and formed yet so with everything in me I think that God wants to have a real and genuine relationship with he already knows exactly who we are like you know, we're so used to having to fake it in front of all of our Christian friends and pretend we're so pious and high and mighty that I don't think that we can even really grasp and comprehend God knows that's not us. And God just wants an actual real relationship with us. But one of the things that I think is so important to grasp and understand and comprehend is that God is for you. God loves you deeply and and more widely than you were even capable of imagining. And so that is one piece of gold that I want us to like kind of hang on to from this chapter. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up there. I have the first episode of the Yellowstone podcast that I'm working on ready to go. And uh, for those that haven't heard about that yet, um, the TV show Yellowstone, I think the TV show Yellowstone has some incredibly strong parallels to the American church. And so if anyone is familiar with Christine Dumais, Jesus and John Wayne, uh, as we know, there, there's, just, there, you know, there's a lot of rugged Western cowboy mentality in the evangelical church. And it just so turns out that a television show that is about a rant, a huge ranch in America has some really strong parallels to the American church. So I'm doing a limited edition podcast series on that. That will only be available to my Substack subscribers and my Patreon supporters. So if you're interested in that, that should be coming out any day now. Uh, you can subscribe on Substack. I will leave links to my Substack to my Patreon and then also to like Twitter and Instagram accounts in the show notes. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up there. Um, and I will see you next week.